I can tell there's going to be a tough audience tonight. All right. We have supped well, so special thanks to all the servers and everyone helping out tonight. But uh, I would like to begin this evening by doing something that you're not supposed to do when you're doing any kind of speaking. But I'd like to offer for your gracious consideration a quotation. Sort of a, it's, it's kind of a, my wife would say it's a lengthy quotation. All right. But one of considerable importance to our reflection uh, this weekend. It's taken from a work which the eminent Thomist, Etienne Gilson, said was the finest work that he'd ever read on St. Thomas. The title of the book was The Dumb Ox, all right, written by G.K. Chesterton. And in that book, he talks about Martin Luther and St. Thomas. So I'd ask you just to, you've been drinking wine, but drink this quote in with your spirit tonight. All right. This is Chesterton on Luther. It is said that the great reformer publicly burned the Summa Theologiae and the works of Aquinas. And with the bonfire of such books, this book may well come to an end. They say it's very difficult to burn a book. And it must have been exceedingly difficult to burn such a mountain of books as the Dominican had contributed to the controversies of Christendom. Anyhow, there was something lurid and apocalyptic about the idea of such destruction when we consider the compact complexity of all that encyclopedic survey of social and moral and theoretical things. All the close-packed definitions that excluded so many errors and extremes, all the broad and balanced judgments upon the clash of loyalties or the choice of evils, all the liberal speculations upon the limits of government or the proper conditions of justice, all the distinctions between the use and abuse of private property, all the rules and exceptions about the great evil of war, all the allowances for human weakness and all the provisions for human health. All this mass of medieval humanism shriveled and curled up in smoke before the eyes of its enemy. And that great passionate peasant rejoiced darkly because the day of the intellect was over. Sentence by sentence it burned and syllogism by syllogism and the golden maxims turned to gold and flames in that last dying glory of all that had been once the great wisdom of the Greeks, the great central synthesis of history that was to have linked the ancient with the modern world went up in smoke and for half the world was forgotten like vapor." End quote. I love Chesterton. So, welcome to the modern world. That's what we're in. Now that world might have forgotten St. Thomas and its rush to be modern, just as the age of reason, the so-called age of enlightenment, rushed to make reason a god and turned reason into unreason. We see all around us the fruits of the abandonment of the intellect. The writer Plutarch once said that the two worst sins against faith were atheism and superstition. Atheism and superstition. St. Thomas believed that of the two, superstition was the worst. 
because at least with atheism, you're still talking and thinking about God. But with super okay, but with superstition, one was trying to manipulate God. Now, in many ways, our contemporary or modern age is dominated by these two heirs. All right? And this is the fruit of the collapse of reason in our time. Many live today a concrete form of existential or what we call practical atheism. They live as if God really did not exist. They don't even raise the question whether he exists. Now, many in this room tonight probably think that in the last two years we've lost our minds, right? Just the last, you know what I'm referring to, subtly. Are you recording this? Oh, hell. All right. Okay. The last two years we've sort of lost our minds and everything's fallen apart in the last two years. But it's not true. I'm an old dude now, all right? And I remember the 60s, all right? And I remember certain things that happened in the 60s. If I could share some of those memories with you. Back in 1966, Time magazine startled the world by putting on the cover of its magazine a lead story entitled, Is God Dead? Does anyone remember that? A few of you in the room probably remember. Is God, okay, welcome to the geezer club. All right, <laughs> is God dead? All right. Now, few people would realize, few people would realize that exactly 30 years later in 1966, okay, that's the 60s, the age of gling. You know what gling is? It's the sound of a guitar chord, gling. People would say things that were really stupid, but they tried to pretend they were founded, which is gling. We call it gling in our family, so I'm sharing a little family insight there. But th exactly 30 years later, Time Magazine placed a split-face image of Jesus Christ on the cover. So perhaps, just perhaps, God will outlast Time magazine. Maybe, <laughs> all right? Now, I certainly don't want this evening to encourage anyone to start reading magazines. As a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis said, one should never read any magazine. It's not good for your English. So <laughs> try to stay away from that. And I can assure you it's worse for your theology, if you're trying to do theology, looking at magazines, all right? But um, inside you had a report of this Time magazine, what was called the Jesus Seminar, which still continues a little bit uh, today. They met at the Flamingo Hotel in California. Welcome to the hotel town. Okay, never mind. Okay. <laughs> Where this group of self-named scholars voted using colored beads. They would take out different colored beads uh, to determine what words in the gospel can actually be attributed to the historical Jesus. Can you imagine all these guys in a hotel in California taking out colored beads, voting on what words really were said by Jesus and what were not. Now this group which felt it knew better than the men who wrote the gospel, who shed their blood dying for the truth contained in that gospel and what they wrote, they thought they knew better what was true in them. Now, this group in the Jesus Seminar in 1966 was led by a chairman who was an ex-priest who left the priesthood to get married. And he said, I did this because he discovered, quote, <clears throat> inconsistencies in the Gospels. Now, how's that for hard modern logic? I see inconsistencies in the Gospels, therefore I'm going to give up my vocation. All right, whatever. Now, like all modernists, there is a certain self-idolatry which makes religion a religion of modernity. 
and although it purports to be scientific, is really unscientific and really misuses the intellect in many, many ways. Just as the Teutonic Rudolf Bultmann sought to demythologize the gospel and came up with a Christ who actually looked very much like Rudolf Bultmann. <laughs> All right? So the Jesus Seminar came up with a Christ who back in 1966 looks very much like Al Gore. <laughs> Sorry, I, you're taping that. Okay, forget it. All right. But anyway, and if they meet today, I'm sure that Jesus they would come up would look very much like President Joe Biden because he was devout and Jesus was devout. Right? Now the result of flowing from an abuse of the intellect Okay, in this type of practical atheism that we are experiencing, all of this is a symbol of so much that is wrong with our times. And we're beginning to interpret now our reality through unreality. Our reality is interpreted now through unreality. We are seeing everything through television, through social media. And if we don't like Christ as he's presented, we just turn the channel and find some other version. We just got back from a pilgrimage to France, and when we were in France, we saw a number of incorrupt saints. France, I think, has the record for incorrupt saints. It's amazing. Bernadette of Lourdes, of course, is incorrupt. St. Margaret Mary Alico is incorrupt. St. Catherine Labore is incorrupt. The heart of Vincent de Paul is incorrupt. And we saw all of these. But the modern world would see no difference between, you know, the incorrupt body of St. Bernadette or St. Margaret Mary and looking at Sleeping Beauty on the Disney Channel. You know, I mean, it's the same thing, you know. We're starting to see reality through unreality. And we interpret our reality through unreality. Now, of course, when God is denied, whenever God is denied or ignored, our sense of reality is dramatically distorted. And most people then lapse into various forms of superstition. Start reading horoscopes, looking at crystals, new age movements, spirituality of, of spiritualists and things like that, which are very difficult. But this practical atheism has led to real distortion in our ability to perceive reality. And superstition has become rampant. These are characteristics of the times in which we live in our modern age. It cries out now for sound thinking. Our age really cries out for sound thinking. We need this, particularly in theology and in philosophy. Now, many in our age are content with this drivel, but are missing what William Wallace, I still love the movie Braveheart, you remember they said, you're missing your God-given chance for something better. And that's what we need to search for. There is so much out there that is better than this. But the modern age, our progressive age, is like little children... We're content to stay and play in the little sand castles we've built by the puddle down at the ocean instead of being on board of a great sea-going vessel like the Summa and sail out on the open seas as God and his church would want us to do. And as St. John Paul really encouraged us to do in his great Thomistic encyclical, Fides et Ratio. And yet in many ways it would seem that St. Thomas is not really relevant to our modern era particularly as we end the 20th century, we're moving into the 21st century. And it would seem that many would reject studying Thomas for a number of reasons. First of all, let's have an objection. 
Many today reject the gospel as a source of truth. Anyone who bases his thought upon the faith as a supreme norm and guide cannot convincingly speak to modern man. Because that's not where modern man is at. Object in two. Linguistic analysis reveals a language and a vocabulary in St. Thomas which is obscure and actually meaningless for most people today. Three, the language of scholastic theology is unacceptable and incomprehensible as it depends upon ancient philosophy which possesses a worldview and understanding of human nature that is very much removed from our contemporary world. Objection four, it would seem that our modern era has seen radical changes in natural science, in technology, in social relations, culture, political making, all this pointing to the 13th century world as something that really is dated and irrelevant. And then five, the rational method itself has changed the way we philosophize and the questions we're applying our mind to. We don't turn to things of faith in this way anymore. And therefore, the philosoph uh, any philosophical system of a distant age is not adapted to the reality as it's perceived at the present stage of human development. All these objections you'll hear different people say. Yet one of the greatest minds of our time, one of the greatest spiritual leaders of our time, St. John Paul II, in his beautiful book, Crossing the Threshold of Hope, wrote, and I quote, St. Thomas celebrates all the richness and complexity of each created being, and especially of the human person. It is not good, he says, that his thought has been set aside in the post-conciliar period, he continues, in fact, to be the master of philosophical and theological universalism. So said John Paul. Now let's look a little bit at, at Thomas and the situation we're in right now. A wise man, who is a wise man? A wise man is one who searches for ultimate answers, is interested in ultimate answers. Answers that will make him capable of living a fully human life. We'll understand what it means to be a human being. Our current times are characterized by increasing intellectual confusion in so many areas. We have an abundance today of facts and data. It's all on the internet. You can click it in a moment, but not wisdom. And I think it is absolutely true, as Thomas observes, God is necessary. God is necessary if we're going to acquire wisdom. If we just study man, or we just study the world without God, we're left with nothing but meaningless detail. Lots of details, but there's no meaning, like little Greta. But it doesn't mean anything. So we have to add words to the notes. You know what I'm referring to? Sound of music? Okay, you're, you know musicals, don't you? I hope you do. Anyway, all right. That was for you, honey. All right. <laughs> But this world is only intelligible in terms of man and in terms of God. And man is intelligible only in terms of God. If you don't get God, you're not going to understand man. And you're not going to understand the world unless you understand man and God together. And as St. Thomas observes, God is intelligible only in terms of himself, what he tells us about himself. So St. Thomas teaches us that the human mind can be 
and must be illuminated by, with divine help, by grace. And unless a man knows about God, he cannot know the most important things about the world or about himself if he doesn't know God. So spiritual understanding, what is communicated by the revelation of faith, reveals what? It reveals our place in the world. It also reveals the incredible dignity that we have as human beings, the dignity of man. And also, it reveals the promise of an eternal union. And that eternal union dwarfs every other consideration that we might want to reflect upon. Today, sadly, we learn and teach everything but the most important things. Denying or forgetting God, we simply cannot answer, who is man? What's it mean to be a man? What's it mean to be a woman? We can't answer that, so enter into gender confusion, right? We don't know what it is. We can't define. We have a justice on the Supreme Court approved who can't tell us what a woman is. And yet we're rejoicing that the first, that the, she's a woman, black woman elected the Supreme Court. We know that, I guess. We can't say what, the, what, what a man is, what a woman is. We can't say what the world is. So many who are educated and they're very knowledgeable, but they're not wise. Many today would be shocked to think, can we really learn anything from St. Thomas? I mean, look at the guy. How a modernist would actually look at St. Thomas. Strike number one, he lived in a cloister. What can he know? living in a cloister. Secondly, he lived at the wrong time, the Middle Ages, but the Dark Ages, right? Who can relate to anything in the Middle Ages? And then third, of course, his way of life was to be a begging friar, a mendicant friar, and he had a great love for books, which were really expensive. In other words, St. Thomas, guy had to be a weirdo. You know, what, what could we learn from St. Thomas? But there are other things we know about St. Thomas. He had an incredible capacity to love. One of his closest friends, St. Bonaventure, spoke eloquently about Thomas' incredible capacity for love. His sisters, when his brothers kidnapped him, his sisters knew that Thomas had an incredible capacity for love. So did Thomas's mother as well. And his youthful passion, which remained with him throughout his entire life, he never grew old, was to pursue the truth. Thomas was in love with truth. His vocation, of course, had him turn away from the world, that is worldliness, but not from the society of men. He was passionate. He preached all the time. He had great zeal for souls and the intellectual courage to step into mystery and the humility to step into mystery when faith required him to do so. He knew, of course, that human nature does not change and that every age still has to deal with perennial questions that don't go away. Whether one is living in ancient Greece, whether you're living in China, whether you're living in the Middle Ages, or living in, the modern, in modern times. But Thomas's youthful spirit, and you see this in his reading if you read attentively, his joyful confidence stayed with him throughout his life. His mind moved, as one author said, along the corridors of eternity and the existing universe. Isn't that beautiful? His mind moved along the corridors of eternity and the existing universe. He was very much taken with reality. 
That's why when you look at a summa, it's divided into three basic parts. I'm supposed to give you an orientation and an opening, to, so I'm going to do some of this tonight, so hopefully it'll help with tomorrow. All right? Part one of his summa examines God as he is in himself, the angelic, the human, and the physical world. Part one. In the second part, he deals with man's movement back to the source of his being. And then in part three, he deals with the means of the road by which we must travel to get back to our home from which we came. Thomas and his summa, like children, ask numerous questions, many, many questions. The contentedly ignorant and the insufferably omniscient never ask questions. That's not Thomas. He's always asking questions. Thomas's love of truth leads him to defend God's perfection and also man's perfectibility, that we're called to perfection. St. John Paul II, I'm going to refer to a couple more times in this talk tonight because he is the great philosopher Pope. Uh, he gave a very memorable address at the Angelicum back in 1979. I remember I was there along with Kathy and my daughter when he gave this great talk on the importance of St. Thomas. And he said several things, four things that really characterizes Thomas' philosophy that drew John Paul as young Karawatiwa as a student, as a seminarian, and as a philosopher to Thomas. Point number one, his complete submission of heart to divine revelation. Thomas loved divine revelation. Secondly, Thomas's great respect for the visible world, for concrete reality. Third, his lifelong acceptance of the teaching office of the church, what the magisterium has said and taught us about the world and about Christ. And fourth, his openness and his universalism, which is found in his philosophy of being, which emphasizes realism and objectivity. For Thomas, as he said in his commentary on John's gospel, the knowledge of what is true is given by the fervor of love. Isn't that beautiful? The knowledge of what is true is given by the fervor of love. In other words, he loved God, and that's what gave, that fervor gave him the desire to pursue and to acquire what is true. Pius XI and John Paul said, St. Thomas was called a master because why? He was a master who deeply was deeply human because he was deeply Christian. And precisely because he was deeply Christian, was also deeply human, the friend of man. All right. We see all around us today in our modern society, that's why the title of the topic, St. Thomas and a Culture in Crisis, the fruits of the abandonment of the intellect. Now, the world might have forgotten St. Thomas for four centuries, but the church never did. St. John Paul II loved St. Thomas. And St. John Paul II, I think one of the titles that will stick with him, he was called, even during his lifetime, the Pope of Truth. Because he was really into, you know, very tati splendor, the love of truth, fides et ratio. But he manifested throughout that 27-year pontificate a sublime confidence in the power of truth to attract and to hold men. And this is something he picked up from his time studying under Gary Lagrange at the Angelicum and his deep love for St. Thomas. From Redemptor Hominus with that bold proclamation that Christ reveals man fully to himself to his great encyclical, which I want to refer to tonight, Fides et Ratio, deeply inspired 
by the same confidence that Thomas had, confidence in the power of truth, both natural truth and supernatural truth. All right. He spoke confidently of man's ability to know the truth and that man, when he knew the truth, had to submit to its sovereignty. And the great example of St. Thomas. Pope Benedict XVI also did this in his encyclical Lumen Fidei. Now, I know that was a Francis encyclical, but everyone knows Benedict wrote Lumen Fidei, and Francis put it out on his name. It was his last encyclical, and he spoke very clearly about that. But John Paul II, in address he gave to, some, so to the Dominicans at Toulouse, and we were just in Toulouse, very moving moment, we went to France, because in the beautiful church down in Toulouse, where Dominic built his first priory down there, the relics of St. Thomas are there. So we actually said mass right over the mortal remains of St. Thomas, but I'm happy to let you know, thanks to Father Pollard, we have a first class relic of St. Thomas in our altar in the chapel there. So you can see that uh, tomorrow when we go in there. We're delighted to have that connection with Thomas. But this is what John Paul said to the Dominicans. Today I encourage the friars preachers who wish to continue their research in philosophy and theology to become true disciples of St. Thomas, qualified to deal with questions, disputations, and to dialogue with those who are distant from faith and the church. And he goes on, by assiduous reference to the monumental work of the angelic doctor, Christian thinkers acquire rigorous methodology and the conceptual means allowing them to penetrate the depths of sacred doctrine and to conduct a rational argument which can demonstrate the divine existence and perfections as far as human reason can comprehend them. Isn't that a great quote? Stirring quote from John Paul II. And then, of course, he goes on to talk about how important this is. Now, we're witnessing, I think, in a certain sense, kind of the end of the modern world. We're in a new stage right now because everything has collapsed. Everything is wide open. Everything is challenged. Everything is being uh, open for discussion and argument. But perhaps now, because everything's open for discussion again, we maybe can start to listen to the Vox Ecclesia, to the voice of the church that has consistently, century after century, said, we need to go back to St. Thomas. We need to go back to Thomas again and look at the golden wisdom that's found there. And we are definitely facing a crisis of intellect. And again, time and time again, the Pope and other popes, even Francis on occasion, has talked about the value and the importance of studying in this particular area. Particularly, probably the most Thomistic of all of John Paul's encyclicals was Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason. And so in that encyclical, he talks about the basic problem that we're facing is in anthropology. Even before the calling of the Second Vatican Council, St. John Paul II, he was just a bishop at that time, John XXIII sent out a letter saying, what should the council talk about? What do we need to deal with? And we still have John Paul's letter that he wrote as just Carl Wojtyla, Bishop of Krakow, and he wrote it in Latin, and someday I'd love to get it translated in public. He said, we have to talk about man because we don't know what it means to be a human being anymore. It's a crisis of understanding our humanity. And of course, after the Second World War, who wouldn't see that? When six million Jews are burned and destroyed at concentration camps, millions dying because of a hideous ideology, we've lost sight of what it means to be human. 
So that great question that you have at the, you know, on the Apollo's great temple at Delphi, man, know thyself, know thyself. And there's a crisis right way We don't know who we are. Fundamental questions, which the modern world seeks to avoid but cannot escape. We have to answer these questions. Who is man? What is the meaning of life? We have to think about why is there evil in the world? Where are we from? Where are we going? It is a shocking thing that human beings as rational creatures never ask, what happens to me when I die? We're going to keep playing as if it goes on forever and ever, as if it doesn't come to an end. And when death frequently is hidden from us, we don't reflect about the fact that we will come to an end of our earthly physical life, what happens then? We should be deeply interested in that and asking those basic fundamental questions. But tragically, the modern world has no answer to any of those questions. But the church, of course, has Jesus Christ, the gift of Christ, and the truth about human life. And Thomas had that as well. But oftentimes in modern philosophy, the search for the ultimate answers to these questions, we don't even raise them. Agnosticism, we don't really know, we can't really know. Relativism, all positions are equally true. We are now adrift. We're not grounded in reality anymore. And even certain, you know, some of the Eastern philosophies like Zen has become very popular, which actually denies the principle of contradiction. So how can you talk about anything? Let's go meditate on the sound of one hand clapping. That's a traditional Zen meditation, all right? But it's meaningless. You're supposed to realize that human thought is meaningless. And so you end up with a type of nihilism, all right? And so these radical questions of great importance are no longer asked. We're, we're left adrift and floating. And as a result, many young people, they go to school, they go to college, but there's no real education, a to lead out, right? A to lead out, to lead out, lead out of the darkness into the light, all right? The mind is made for the apprehension of truth, not just seeking truth, but grasping it and coming to know it. But because many young people are dwelling this miasma where everything's up for grabs, we don't know who we are, we don't know where we're going, etc., it leads to despair, and they don't know who they are. And then, of course, there's a crisis of identity. We don't know who we are, all right? This is a very serious, serious problem. And one of the big problems we're having that John Paul zeroes in, that Thomas brings together so beautifully, is there's been a horrible separation of faith and reason in our time. And as John Paul said in Fetus at Ratio, following and echoing St. Thomas, Faith and reason cannot be separated without diminishing the capacity of men and women to know themselves, to know the world, and to know God. And he uses this great expression where he says, he actually goes back to the book of Sirach where there's that passage that says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. The fool says that. Now the fool represents theoretical or practical atheism. All right, which characterizes modernity. Modernity is full of foolishness. In other words, the fool thinks he knows. The fool says at heart, there is no God. He thinks he knows. And that's the worst kind of blindness, right? When you think you know, but you really don't. And that's what's happening in so much of our world today. We think we know, but we really don't 
know. And because we don't really know, we're incapable of fixing our gaze upon things that truly matter, like God, human identity, the possibility of revelation, etc., etc. But if the property of the, the philosopher is, you know, what is this, the old expression, sapiensis est ordinare, the, the wisdom is to give order and to bring order, all right? If we really don't understand, if we're not really wise, we don't understand the purpose of human existence, you can't order your mind then. Your mind cannot be ordered. And you can't come to a proper understanding of who you are as a human being, nor can you understand the world around you. Right? The mere fact that the fool says that God does not exist reveals how truly deficient his knowledge is. Anyone who says, God doesn't really matter, we don't need to talk about him, how can we trust a college, how can we trust a curriculum that makes no reference to God and the reality of his existence? We're going to rule our whole, the main part of reality. It's a serious, serious problem we're facing. But despite this blindness, the ultimate questions persist. And we can't escape from the reality of death. We can't escape from the reality of suffering. And we can't escape ultimately from the reality that we're living in a created and a fallen world. And we need to look at all of that. Now, there has to be a legitimate distinction. The fathers make this between faith and reason, all right? But now we're getting a horrible situation where they become radically separated. And so we're getting a type of separation where reason is supposed to be absolutely independent of faith. Has nothing to do with faith, nothing to say about faith. And so now many in philosophy are explicitly anti-Christian, anti-faith. And of course, Joseph Pieper, one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, said this is one of the great problems of the 20th century and says, we have to bring faith and reason not to confuse the two together, but they have to be brought in a fruitful exchange once again with one another, or there will be no hope for philosophy, and there'll be no hope for religious faith either in this particular context. All right? And because of this, philosophy has been degraded. It's just one of many fields that you can study. It doesn't have a sapiential role that it should play in any curriculum in any university. It's no longer concerned philosophy with universal wisdom and learning, all right? The contemplation of truth or the search for the ultimate goal and meaning of life, which gives philosophy its great nobility and purpose. As Alexander Pope wrote, he decried in his Dunciad, a beautiful poem, philosophy which leaned on heaven's door shrinks to the second cause, 